Tonight we're going to uh, continue with this series in the millennium. Uh, tonight talking the mysteries of the millennial temple and focusing a little bit more on Ezekiel's vision. We talked some about this uh, last week as we are coming to the end, the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. But this is a significant thing that was going to take place. And again, the, the glory of the Lord did not return when they came back from Babylon. There was the temple that was built by uh, Ezra, and then the city, and then the time of Zerubbabel. Um, there, were, there were great leaders back then, but the glory of God never came upon that, what they called the post-exile temple. Then, of course, came Herod. And uh, Herod built his temple and all for his own glory, and the, God, the glory of God never came upon that. That's the temple that was in existence as Jesus was walking um, the land. And so 40 years it took Herod to build that temple. Uh, of course, he's also busy building a huge palace out in Caesarea um, on the seacoast. He had an incredible palace up on the mountain of Masada. He had another incredible place uh, just north or just south of uh, Bethlehem in a place called Hebron. And he built all these places all for his own glory. He had a place all the way up in northern, what we'd consider even Syria today. And all these things were for him, built on the money that was coming to him, and because he was so wealthy, and he was a key personage there, uh, the Romans kind of liked him. They put up with him uh, as long as he paid them tribute. And so those things came along. But his temple, the glory of God never existed there. It, some people think it was probably in architectural design more beautiful than Solomon's. Uh, simply because of the um, artistic and art, art construction, architectural ingenuity, uh, development that had taken place in those what, 700 years since Solomon, almost 1,000 years. So it was not about the beauty of the building. The glory had to do with God's presence. And you read the books of the history, Chronicles, um, Second Kings. You read the books of the histories of the prophets, and you find passages in different ones of the Old Testament prophets. Now, again, not a favorite subject for people to say, oh, I'm doing my devotions out of Nahum, you know, or... Uh, Habakkuk, you know, and so most people do their best to avoid those books, uh, read them when you're ready to go to bed so that you kind of sleep through it, um, but there's things that are revealed there. Uh, for example, did you know that during the time of, of the last kings of Judah, just before Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered that area, that they had altars to pagan gods in the Temple of Solomon, in the side rooms. 
So in the main room where there was the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstands were there and the table of showbread. But in the side chambers, they had altars to pagan gods. The same priests offering the blood on the altar to God were worshiping pagan gods in the side chambers because you're just never sure which God's going to come through for you, you know. So you, you got to play, play the field, you know, so that you can uh, get all these things done. Even Solomon allowed his children to be sacrificed to the god Molech. Solomon. You think, no, surely not. Yeah, he did. He didn't sacrifice them, but he allowed his wives to sacrifice the children. So that's a uh, horrible blemish upon what we think of great people. And this whole time, they're supposed to be worshiping God. Finally, God had done with it. And so, as we said last week, his glory moved out. And so that happened during the time of Ezekiel. So Let's look at our notes, and again, um, just as, I got some, some comparisons here, just as the glory of God filled the tabernacle after its construction, and you can read about that in Exodus chapter 40. That's pretty amazing. That's one of those things that, you, you know, now with computer generation, it could be really incredible the way they would do it. But uh, they put all the sacrifices on there, and they put them all on the wood and laid all that on the, on the altar, and the fire of God came from heaven and consumed what was on that altar. And that's how the first fire on the altar was lit. Pretty incredible. Uh, but that was a way that God confirmed his covenant. This is, this is what I want. You, you did this. And so his glory came and filled that. And it filled the same with the Temple of Solomon. And, you know, we, we read about that in different places, how the glory of God filled the place. And they were all singing and worshiping as David had taught them how to do. And then Solomon uh, brought in all of his. He, he just magnified the orchestra and all of the sound. And, and the sound was so great. And the the worship was going forth, and the glory of God came in so that the people could not even stand to minister. And so it was just an awesome, awesome experience. Well, just as that happened, so Ezekiel was assured in a vision that once again God's glory would reside with Israel. Can you imagine him telling that to the people? God's glory is going to come down and fill this place. The people said, hmm, I don't think so. I'm not seeing it happen. I, I don't see how in the world that's going to be. I mean, they've got altars to pagan gods inside there. How could the glory of God ever come upon this place? Just as the exiles despaired at the departure of God's glory in Ezekiel's vision, so there had to be, as I talked about it last week, there had to be an incredible just amount of discouragement and, and sadness when the glory of God departed. We'll talk a little bit more of that in a minute, but 
just as they had seen it depart. So Israel had once despaired when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that story? Saul said, hey, let's do something. Let's do something. No, it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't Saul. It was the, uh, the priests in the uh, time of Eli. And they said, let's do something religious. Let's go get the ark. We'll bring it out. We'll put it ahead of the army. And uh, <laughs> the Philistines took it. And they moved it into, into their palace and put it in their pagan temple to Dagon and knocked him over. And uh, that wasn't enough, so they set him back up, knocked him over again. His head was broken off. That wasn't a good thing. And so they also found that they'd been smitten with emeralds. Now, you have to do a little study. Put an H in front of the emerald, and you'll know exactly what they were smitten with. Your translation may say tumors. But it wasn't. It was hemorrhoids. Yeah, we'll just go right ahead and say it. And that would definitely get your attention. So then they made little little golden hemorrhoids and put them in the ark, along with the mice. There's mice, too. Mice and hemorrhoids. Wow. And um, they said, let's get this thing out of here, and they sent it away. So when it came back to Israel, what did they do with the ark? They move it into the temple. What'd they do with it? Somebody tell me. They stuck it in the corner of somebody's house. And so they put it in a house and stuck it underneath the covers and put all the things over top of it. And it stayed there. And it stayed there. And it stayed there. And it stayed there for 40 years. 40 years. During the remainder time of, of Samuel, during the entire reign of Saul, until the early years of David's reign. And he finally said, let's go get the ark. And so then you have that whole story. And he put it, instead of taking it to the tabernacle, he took it up to Zion, built a little tent for it, and put it in there. And they all danced and worshipped and praised God before the ark. And so it was a tremendous thing. But they saw it go, but they also saw it come back. So Eli has promised that the same way that the glory left, it will return. That the glory will be restored in this new temple. They probably thought that was, what, next year? A couple years from now? They thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. It wasn't because something else had to happen first. God had to send his Messiah. Not to rule as he's going to from the millennial temple because that's what they saw. <laughs> they saw a powerful ruler in this millennial temple, all the nations bowing down, everybody coming and saying, Israel is such a wonderful place, you're such a wonderful nation, the Jews are the greatest people in the world, um, we, we, we love you and we love your Messiah. That's what they thought what was going to happen was God was going to send them Messiah, but he was going to die for them because he had to be their sacrifice before he could be their king. So, 
Um, all of these things were going to happen, and though it was going to not be in Ezekiel's time. Again, I go back to the passage in, in 1 Peter where it says the prophets wrote about things that they didn't understand, but they knew that they were not for them, but they were for a people not yet to be known. And so Ezekiel's writing these things, and he knows it's never going to happen in his lifetime. Jeremiah wrote many things, and he knew they weren't going to happen in his lifetime. It wasn't going to happen for him. Isaiah wrote things, and he knew it wasn't going to happen for him. They weren't about him. They weren't about his time. They were about some time yet to come. And the only place that this can take place is in this millennial age. A thousand years. Think of a thousand years. What was going on a thousand years ago? We talked about that. What was going on? The plagues. The great plague of, of Europe. The Black Death. What was going on a thousand years ago? The early years of, of China's greatest empire. A thousand years ago. 1200s. It's a long time ago. So, what are we going to do with this? We're going to wait for it. We're going to wait for it. And just as I've been saying all along, we can't take these prophecies and redirect them to our, to our age because they don't belong to our age. And we can see they don't. When you read the whole passage, you might look at a verse and say, wow, that's great, and I can apply that verse to my life. Well, there may be spiritual truth in it that you can apply to your life, but the passage is about a time that is not yet, a time when there is no war, a time when the animals don't even prey upon one another, a glorious time which is yet to come, when the Shekinah glory of God has come to rest upon the the people and upon uh, this this building now i put the notes in there it's in the middle of your page the shekinah the word really never occurs in the in the old testament the word shekinah um, it's been added the word that does occur is the greek word sakan uh, and sakan means to rest or abide upon and it's tied to in a couple passages it's tied to the glory so it would be what we would say abiding glory. So what is the Shekinah? It is the abiding glory. It's the glory that you can see. It's a glory that comes to rest upon. And so we, we have adapted the word Shekinah, which has to do with light, and uh, brought it to that. But it talks about the settled glory or the abiding glory that came down uh, at Mount Sinai. It came on Solomon's temple for a period of time. What's interesting is you go all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 1, and the first vision that he sees, the notes, it's in your notes there, vision, Ezekiel 1 verses 4 through 28, but he sees the glory of God coming in a storm from the north. He sees this massive storm moving in, and within the storm is the glory of God. And it's like God is invading. And, and so comes this, 
this incredible, overwhelming experience that he has. But then chapters 10 and 11, I, I suggested that you read those chapters. I don't know how many of you did. But if you read through Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, there's, there's a lot of sadness in that section as the glory of God in, in almost in, in incremental ways moves out of the temple. It's, it's there and it moves off and it comes back and it lifts off and it comes back. And all of this is going on showing the, the transience of the hearts of the people that God is trying to get their attention but his grace and his mercy keeps coming back for them I mean that's the covenant love of this God that we have and he'd see all of their rejection of him and their evil and the despicable attitudes that they have in their hearts but he still loves them Israel as his people. These are my people. This is my nation. And I could see God's restraining. I don't want to leave, but you've made it impossible for me not to. So ultimately, he does leave. Down toward the bottom, it talks about how you see this experience take place in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, first, the glory moves to the eastern gate. It moves out from within the temple to the eastern gate, and it kind of sits over the gate there for a period of time. Then it moves up to the Mount of Olives, and it sits over the Mount of Olives for a period of time. Now, it never tells us when it finally moved away from there. It just did. And so the next stage is never told. However, according to numerous rabbinical sources, different rabbis who commented on that period of time uh, it stayed over the Mount of Olives for a space of three and a half years as God was waiting now that's again we don't have that in the Bible but according to traditions of the Jews um, that's what they say three and a half years God kept almost waiting for them can you imagine you're you're in the city of Jerusalem Here's the temple, and you can see the Mount of Olives. It's, it's right outside there. It's higher than the temple. And you could see it out there. And on, on that is the glory of God. But it's not where you are. But you won't change your heart so that it will come back. Ezekiel's prophesying. Jeremiah is prophesying. They're telling the people what they need to do, but the people won't change. So finally, it just goes. And in some ways, you almost wonder, did anybody notice? Did anybody notice? Did you ever read that, the story of Samson? One of the saddest statements, one of the saddest statements in all of the Bible is when he awoke from his drunken stupor with Delilah, and it says, and he knew not that the Spirit of the Lord had departed. He didn't even know it. So unaware of the presence of God that he didn't even notice that it was gone. So also here. Yet. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 43. 
Ezekiel 43. And so as we, we look at this section, we find God moving in this, in this way to come back to his people. There is a time. And what's happened before this time? What happened before the millennium? Seven years called the tribulation. Wow. That'll get your attention. And so Israel has finally come to a place where they are wasted. They can't stand any longer. The time of the tribulation in the Old Testament, one place it's called the days of Jacob's travail or his trouble. This, this is Jacob travailing. This is, this is a horrible time. And numbers of witnesses have come, the 144,000, uh, the two witnesses, um, many others coming, bringing the message of the Messiah. For seven years they've heard this and they've seen nothing but evil around them and all kinds of destruction and all manners of of horrible things happening there and around the world. They've seen uh, the Antichrist rise up and set up his kingdom and, and from his throne there in Jerusalem. And they've seen him gather his armies uh, to oppose the coming Christ. And, and they saw the war. Okay, they saw the minute, one minute war. They saw all of it. And they saw the Lord return. And then comes this glorious time for the kingdom. And so it says in, in Ezekiel 43, um, again, I'll just read the first few verses. He led me to the gate, the gate facing the east, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. So where did it come from? The east. Where did it go when it left? To the east. Right? So it's coming back the same way it came. Isn't that what it said about the Lord? He's going to come as lightning coming from the east to the west. Right? And so his coming will be uh, from that. And he will come through that glorious gate. Well, the Lord is one thing, but this glory of God is another. This is God actually coming to, uh, to sit upon, to, to inhabit this temple. And just like a vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had uh, by Kabar Kano, I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Um, Ezekiel was just, he was like transported, lifted up, and set there. Now, this is not the only time he's experienced this. Uh, he had numbers of experiences with the Lord lifting him up and placing him in different places. Um, and then it says in verse 6, and uh, here's a question that was asked me, so I'm going to do my best to answer. Uh, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. All right, so there's this, this man that is with him. Um, and the man is the one who's guiding him. He's asking him questions. He's giving him answers. 
uh, all the way through the next number of chapters. Uh, who is this man? Well, commentaries question one way or another. I simply believe it's an angel. And the reason he refers to him as a man is because he was so real in appearance. Because angels can take on an appearance. Um, Paul said in the book of Hebrews, we entertain angels, you know, and not knowing it. And so messengers come and and so there's different ways that the angels can appear in our presence. And so uh, he's this man is there, but notice there's another voice. And the voice is is about my glory and my power and my position. And so who's that voice? That is God himself, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And just like God had spoken that he was going to leave, now he's spoken he is returning. The house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their warring, by their dead bodies of their kings in their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. What's that about? That's that. That's the pagan idols in the chamber rooms that are in God's temple. That's what it's talking about. And so God is making, he said, I, I knew what you were doing. I knew you had other gods right in the other room, just a wall between me and them. You think I couldn't see because you were behind a wall? God says, I knew, I knew all of that, but you know what? That's going to be gone. Why? Why is it gone? Because this is a different people. These are people who have accepted the Messiah. Remember, all the ones entering the millennium have accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They have accepted that he is the true Messiah. And so they have believed. They weren't put to death. They have lived through the tribulation. And now they are coming into the time of the millennium. They're the ones who will have the children that will become the next generations uh, that will go on. But God says, I, I know what was going on. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. That was in the past. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, that's a common phrase that found over and over in the book of Ezekiel son of man described to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities again like I said last week notice there's no place it's built it just appears God set his temple in the earth right and so uh, what he says is but I want you to describe it to them and if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that, that is, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. What temple? The millennial temple. This isn't about 
the temple today. This isn't about the church age. You cannot apply this to the church age. We are not subject to the statutes and the laws. But God is going to establish this in there in, in Israel. But but there's passages before this. Now we apply them, and Paul applies them uh, to the to the church, where it's God talks about He's going to take out of them a heart of flesh. A heart of stone, sorry, and put in them a heart of flesh. It's take a heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh. Now, you say flesh? No, that's the that's evil. No, not there. It just means real. All right. So, don't get all shook up. All right. So, put in a heart of flesh, and I will write upon them all my statutes and all my laws, and they will follow. Right now, we apply that to the church. We apply that to ourselves. Paul himself does. But God didn't give us the law, but he's going to reestablish the law in the millennium. And they're going to live by these laws, but the laws are going to come from within. They're no, no longer will the law be on the outside as it was throughout the Old Testament in the time of Moses. All up through the time of Jesus, the law wasn't going to be on the outside of them, telling them what they had to do. It's going to be on the inside, giving them the ability to do. And so they won't violate his laws. They will not defile these laws. And he's going to be there with them. Um, one of the next questions that came up, and a couple of people made comment about this, it says forever. But what about the new heaven and the earth? Isn't that forever? You know, this is the millennial temple, and it's only a thousand years. All right, well, think about it this way. The forever he's talking about here is to the end of measured time. Because at the end of the millennium, at the end of the great white throne judgment, which immediately follows, measured time ends. There's no more such thing as measured time. When the new heaven and new earth is revealed... Revelation 21, measured time is done. So this is going to exist until the end of measured time. Because this will not be going on during the time that we'll refer to as the new heaven and new earth. This will not be taking place. There'll be another temple, the heavenly temple. And that's altogether different. All right, and so... Uh, we'll be talking about that when we get to chapter 21 in Revelation. All right, so he says that this is all going to take place. Now, there's there's a number of things uh, that take place in here, and this is in your notes on pages 2 and 3. Uh, the different things that he says about this period of time. And again, uh, this is not referring to something that has to do with the church age. This is referring to a special time. That is not yet come to us. And so the very first thing that it tells us, these, these verses reveal, number one, the temple was the throne of the house of God. So this, this temple becomes the throne of God. It's not like there's a separate throne. The temple is the throne of God. And he's going to set up his throne in this temple, and his glory is going to be there and so the first thing is that this is the the house of god the the ark 
that was in the holy place in the temple of Solomon was considered the seat of God. Remember what the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called? It was called the mercy seat, right? The mercy seat. And God says, I will meet you there, right? And so they poured out the blood upon the mercy seat, all right? And so this is, uh, in a sense, that was God's throne, but it was a temporary throne. This will be God's abiding throne. And so he is going to stay here for this thousand-year period of time. It's not a matter of he's there sometimes and he's gone sometimes. Uh, it's not a, a just a presence of his Shekinah. This is his glorious presence. All right, And he is going to be there with his people, and he's going to set himself up. Now, the Hebrews understood that God is too great to be contained in, uh, in a room <laughs> or, or even in a building or in a certain location. They understood that. But this is, this is God establishing that the reality of his presence will be there. People will be aware. In the Temple of Solomon, it was hidden away from the people. They, they didn't see it. One priest, one day a year, went in to the Holy of Holies. One priest, one day a year. That was it. He's the only one that got to see. And personally, the way I read the scriptures, during all the years of Jesus, the glory of God wasn't in there. <laughs> there was no, the glory of God was not inside. It was gone. God had already moved out. And so that was already gone. He moved out back during the time of Ezekiel. So there was, there was nothing for them to see. There was nothing... Uh, for them to fear when they went in there. Just a box. It's a box with beautiful ad adorning on it, you know, gold and all kinds of things. It, it must have been absolutely glorious, but the glory of God wasn't there. Do you get that? Do you understand that that's, it was just a box? And yet all of the ritual that they did and all that? No. But here, it's not going to be hidden away. They had veils and they had curtains and they had all kind of stone and 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 gold and things concealing the glory of god but here open it's going to be resting over the city the whole temple is going to be his throne not just a room all the way on the inside but his glory will be seen second point the temple was a sign of God's election of Israel. The very fact that he is there says, you are my people. That these are the ones that God has chosen. God had chosen Israel, his people, from all of his redemptive purpose. It's not that all the rest of the people in the world weren't meaningful. It's just that it was through the Jews that God was going to show his way, his pattern. Do you realize that the law was not written for all of the people in the world? The law was written for the Jews. It wasn't written to be obeyed by all the Gentiles. <laughs> they, they couldn't obey it. They couldn't live by it. The law was written for the Jews to teach them so that they could teach the world. But they didn't do it. And so they weren't living that and they were profaning God's name. That's going to come up as we see down here. And so 
God's election of Israel was to show the world what he was going to do. And that Israel was his chosen and he was going to use them, but they didn't let him. Because they preferred their sin to the glory of God and to the purposes and the plans of God. But during this time, God is going to show the entire world Israel is his people. Oh, people, you know, a minor amount of people today will agree that Israel is God's people. A small amount of people will agree with that. Many of them, Jews, wouldn't even believe that Israel is God's people. They don't care at all. They're Jewish by birth. That's all they know. But there's going to be a day when the entire world is going to know Israel's God's people. Israel is God's people. To most of the world, Israel is just a nation that is a thorn in the flesh of everybody. And what we need to do is do away with them. And if you take a vote around the world, I would probably say well over 80% of the people would say Israel is meaningless. Uh, let's just get rid of them. However... God's not going to let that happen. Number three, the temple was a visible sign of the holiness of God. He was going to establish a law. And again, like I said, that law was going to spring from within their hearts, not from the outside, but from within. Now, here's what happens. They have children. Right? Their children have to adopt something or that's not going to be in them. They have to believe in the Messiah. Every child born in the millennium for this thousand years has to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They just like people do today. They're going to have to receive him. Now, not receiving him, they're still not going to be able to rebel. And if they do, they will be put down either by the Jews who are ruling, by the tribulation saints who are ruling, or by us. And so Christ will rule and there will be no rebellion and there will be no wickedness because it will be put down. But not everyone during the millennium will be a believer. And so they will not all believe, but God is going to show his holiness through the lives of those who believe. Because when they believe, he's going to write his laws in their heart and holiness will spring from within instead of from the outside. Why did the priests dress in all those garments? What were those garments about? What was the first garment that a priest put on? Anybody know? What was it? Kind of like, was like white underwear. Yeah, it was. It was the under covering, and it was made of white linen. And so they had to put that on. What was that all about? White is a sign of holiness. And the sleeves came down to their hands and, the, and it hung down to their ankles. And that was, that was their covering of their holiness. But they weren't holy. They just had holy clothes. Which is the way so many people look at Holiness, it's stuff that I do. Holiness is stuff that I do. No, holiness is what's inside. You've been made holy through the new birth. So act it. 
So holiness doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. I separate from this. I separate from that. I, I distinguish myself from these ways or those things. Why? Because it comes from the inside. I don't need that anymore. I don't need to find my fulfillment in those things. My fulfillment comes in what is on the inside of me. And the holiness of God will be on the inside. They had followed such detestable practices. God doesn't name them here, but he does in some of the other places. And it is eye-opening, right? And so the things that they had gotten into. I remember reading Ezekiel, the story of God asking him to cook something over a fire. What was he supposed to use? Dung. And what was he supposed to eat? Dung. He begged God. I don't know how strong his begging must have been. But finally God said, all right. Then, I'll, then you just have to cook your food over it. But God initially said, eat it. Why? Because that's, I want you to see how detestable your sin is to me. Uh, God, I agree. I don't need to see it. I don't need to prove it to me. You got it. Sin's detestable. Um, I'm done with it. But uh, anyway, strange stories from the book of Ezekiel. All right, fourth thing. The temple was a visible witness of God's redemptive love. God said that he had loved them with an everlasting love. Even when he had to move out. Even when he had to allow them to be judged. Even when he had to bring enemies against them as a way of punishment. Just like a parent. Just because you punish your child doesn't mean you don't love them. That's it's part of the love. It's so God's redemptive love. But all along God had made a plan to redeem them. It was It's not just love. It's not ooey-gooey love. It's not, oh, you're so pretty love. It's not... Well, you're the most wonderful person, love. No, it's redemptive. I am going to buy you back. For the story of Hosea, his wife, who had given herself over to, to adultery, fornication, prostitution. He said, go down and buy her back. Why? Because that's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to do that with my nation. So it is that God was showing his perfect love in redeeming them. He had promised that he would. He had said that he would. It was all the way from the time of the fall. And when we read in scripture, it was already accomplished in the mind of God before creation, but revealed after the fall that God was going to redeem mankind through the seed that he would bring forth. That was God's promise. A promise of redemption. And story after story in the Bible shows God's redemptive love. Well, it's never going to be greater than it will be in the millennium. As God shows it to the world. These are my people. 
This is my nation, and I love them. And through them, I love all the world. And so that love was flowing out to all the world, but it was first shown to Israel in the temple. And then finally, the fifth thing, top of page three, is the temple was a physical sign of a new covenant. God was starting something new. The millennium is an altogether new time. It's a different time. And there's a number of points that I bring up about that. Adam's covenant was sealed with a sign, which was the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Noah's covenant was sealed by a rainbow. Circumcision was the seal and sign of Abraham's covenant. Mosaic covenant was sealed by the observance of the Sabbath day and the tabernacle and all of its laws. David's covenant of promise was a permanent dynasty for his descendants, was sealed the temple that his son built. But God said, what? That Jesus, when he come, he would sit on the throne of his father David, right? Mm -hmm. But guess what? David's coming back. <laughs> and David's going to sit on a throne in the millennial temple because God promised him he would. God keeps his promises. So you read something that God says in the scriptures, he's going to do it. The millennium is proof of that. Ezekiel and the prophets envisioned a covenant of peace with a spiritual sign would be the outpouring of the spirit. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. You say, well, that happened on the day of Pentecost. Nothing like it's going to happen here in the millennium. The day of Pentecost is like a shadow of what's going to happen as his spirit is poured out upon all the earth. The temple was this physical confirmation of God's covenant of peace. There will be peace throughout the earth because God has established it to be. There'll be no war. There'll be no killing. There'll be no murder. There'll be no uh, war. None of those things will take place. There'll be no praying of animals upon one another. It's all gone. So then we come to the altar and the sacrifices. And this is one of the great questions in the millennium. Why in the world do they redo the sacrifices? Because they do. And they go back to every, all of the sacrifices. And God gives them all the orders. And they've got all of the, the different altars and the sacrifices that they are to make. And God says, these are my statutes. So what is this about? The system of sacrifices was not for the church. They were pictures showing us what God was going to do. And so for those brave souls who went with me through the book of Leviticus, I have a handful of them in here right now. All of those, all of those different sacrifices, I called them shadows of redemption or shadows of grace. Because they all show God's grace, what he's going to do. And the burnt altar at the very front was God just saying, Welcome! Come in! I've made the way for you to come to me. What a glorious thing. And so God was inviting. God was doing. He was showing through the sacrifices what he would do for mankind. So all of those can help us see what Christ has done. But now that's done. And now we come to the millennium, and what happens? They come back. Not for us, and not for redemption. 
Because people are going to be saved, if we want to call it that, by believing that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're doing the sacrifices. Why? The best thing I have found, and I read numerous, <laughs> numerous commentaries on this, but the best thing I have found is that this new covenant is not sealed with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of the Savior. Is that right? then why are they shedding the blood of bulls and goats? Remember, animals aren't killing one another. But they're offering sacrifices in the temple. So they're killing them. What is this all about? How can this, how can this have any kind of meaning? This will be Israel. And you need to catch this picture, if, and I hope you can, of Israel... Worshiping God in the way he told them to, while the Messiah sits on the throne. He said, I told you that it was my blood. My blood. It's not about a bull's blood. It's about my blood shed for you. And just like the priests would walk the people through their sacrifices, if you don't understand that you need to read the book of Leviticus a little more carefully because what it says is is you the priest doesn't kill the animal for you you kill it he puts the knife in your hand and you draw the knife across the throat of the animal and you catch the bowl in a basin and you give it to him and he casts it at the altar but you kill the animal you skin the animal he shows you how to Cut the animal into the parts and which parts go on the altar and which parts can go to you or go to the priests. He shows you all of that. It's all instruction. But it's an animal dying. But in the millennial temple, it will be, this was him. You died for me. This bull is you. This lamb is you. And so all of the sacrifices that they are making are pointing directly to the one who is sitting upon the throne right in front of them. All directed toward him. The church won't be here. We're going to be with Christ. We're not going to be taking part in this. This is not going to be anything that we do. The church is with Christ forever and we are ruling and reigning with him. Uh, but this is for the people who are alive on the earth during this period of time and and it will allow them to reinstate their covenant god said do this now they're doing it not as an empty ritual but in seeing the fulfillment as they're doing it before him and this will afford them the opportunity to use the symbols of their covenant, all these sacrifices with Jesus, their Messiah, in view. Right there. So, no, it's not a lamb that's dying. It's the Messiah. It's not a turtle dove or a pigeon. It's the Messiah. It's not a bullock with horns and hooves. It's the Messiah. He's dying for us. It's, it, it became easy for Israel to kill animals. 
That's a sad thing. But it became easy. Psst, just another lamb. What the heck? We've got a dozen of them out here. I'll have more by spring. It'll be all right. We'll have another one. Keep the sin level down. We won't have to offer so many lambs. You know, so stop sinning so much. You're going to run through my herb. But you know what? It's altogether different when you realize it's not an animal's blood. It's the Messiah. And that's what they're going to see. And then finally we have the prince who comes to take his position in the temple. I think I read this section the other day, but the top of your page four. My servant David will be their king. My servant David will be their king. You say, well, Jesus is going to be the king. No, Jesus is going to be Lord. All right. Is there between king and Lord? Right? Yeah. He's, he's Lord. He's Messiah. David is their king. They will have only one shepherd. Who's that? David. So David will be their king and he will be their shepherd, exactly what he was during the time that he was on the earth. They will obey my regulations and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob, the land where the, their ancestors lived. They and their children and their grandchildren after them will live there forever. That is, as long as time exists, generation after generation. And my servant David will be their prince forever. He's both king and prince. All right, now you've got to read into that because the word prince has to do with being a, a military leader. All right, so think of... Another word we would say captain or um, conqueror. And so he will be their prince forever. And so he is, he is there and he is also making sacrifices. And he is allowed to come to the eastern gate but not to go through it. And he offers his sacrifice and then he turns and comes back to the temple. No one goes in or out through the eastern gate. There is no western gate, so you can't leave the back door of the temple. There's a north and south gate. If you come in the south gate, you go out the north. If you come in the north gate, you go out the south, so that you're coming through. But all God has all of this arranged and organized. You say, what's the meaning of all of that? God said so. That's my answer. And... Um, you can try to read all kinds of things, and people have read many different things into that. But what's the main point of all of this? Isaiah 44, look at verse 4. Isaiah 44 in verse 4. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord and I fell on my face. That's, that's the, greatest, the greatest testimony. That it's not going to be inside a holy place, inside another place called the Holy of Holies, all the way on the inside, not hidden away from view. So it will be that God's desire will be accomplished I'm not going to go through the section on the priests 
Um, you can read that that yourself, but God's going to raise up a separate order of priests, only the family of Zadok, only those who are descended from Zadok. Uh, the priests that are descended from Levi are not allowed to serve. Why? Because Eli uh, and his priesthood had violated the things of God, and his sons had become profane, and God had made a proclamation, they will never serve as my priests. So, at the time of David, there were two priests, Abiathar and Zadok. Both of them served as priests. Abiathar was descended from, Lee, from Eli. Zadok was descended from another line. So down David's line it goes till it comes to the time in David's death. And as he's dying... His one son, Adonijah, decides he's going to lead a rebellion and take over. Solomon will not be king. He's going to overthrow all of that power. And so Solomon gets, of all people, Joab to join him. And another man. And who else? The priest, Abiathar, who joins himself with Adonijah in rebellion and so his family of priests are, well, they could have been put to death, but Solomon allows them to instead be sent into exile, and they go to a place called Anathoth. Did you ever hear that word before? Anathoth? If you ever watched um, Fiddler on the Roof, it's the name of a town there. Anathoth is a little place way off in the desert where the cursed line of, of priesthood lives. But then you read Jeremiah chapter 1. You believe in a God who redeems everything, who buys back, who shares his grace. So you read in the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, of the priests of Anathoth. Jeremiah was a priest from the cursed line of Eli. Pretty amazing. Who fulfilled the things that God asked him to do. So, God has a way. Again, this millennial temple is an incredible example. There's so many other things. I have notes for pages on stiff things about the millennium that I have recorded, but that's where we're going to end this. Next week we'll go to the White Throne Judgment. There's a thrilling course, you know, everybody wants to come for that. Uh, wow, what'd you talk about tonight? People dying, cast into hell. Right, but anyway, it's an important issue, and there's some things there that we'll learn. So, all right. So, Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for. Uh, the promises that you have made. Father, you made promises and you keep them. You are faithful. Father, whatever promises that you have made for us, specific things that you've spoken to our hearts, things that we have seen in your word that you said that you would do, Father, we trust you. You will bring these things to pass. 
There are things that are yet to be revealed in our life and things that are yet to come in an age which we will only witness. But we thank you, Father God, that in all these things you rule. You are sovereign over all time. You rule the days, the hours, and you will bring to pass what you desired and what you planned at your proper time. And we thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. And I got to quit. I'm being preempted by Fox News or something. All right. So, have a good evening. Great week. Okay, yeah, prayer requests. So if you got any prayer requests, uh, Jan's up here to pray.